Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. With both a spoiler and spoiler-free analysis, there's something here for everyone. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Becoming Buffy. We are on episode five, Homecoming today. You know, this episode is a really pleasant change of pace from the last couple of episodes that we've had in in this season so far. I feel like this season has started off really heavy and then just like kept being heavy. And this episode is just really fun. It's got it's got its moments for sure. We'll talk about it. Hold your horses. We're getting there. Um, but I actually I just really enjoy it. And it's just it's a fun moment with the Scoobies. It feels very much like a high school episode, which I feel like sometimes the the show forgets that we're in high school and or not that forgets, but we don't get to see very much of the school and like the interaction and stuff between um other students. And this is just one of those fun episodes that just makes me go, oh, hey, like we can kind of take a little bit of a breather and a pause. But then, you know, there's also things like, oh, hey, the mayor's here and stuff too. But it was also just like fun because it was like this was the first episode this season that we've seen Cordelia not just be a plot carrier. I don't know how to say that. Yeah. But like she was actually like kind of, she had her own storyline. She had her own like dialogue, but she was still like very much Cordelia. Like it didn't feel like she was just there to like give information. And I just I don't know. And I feel like we saw a more human side of Buffy that we kind of like forget about. It was just very pleasant to see Cordelia on the screen a little bit more too. I feel like both her and Oz have just been kind of relegated to the back seat. So the last episode we had was Oz-centric-ish. Oz was in it more. And then this episode had Cordelia in it more. And it was just like, oh, okay, good. They haven't forgotten about her. I know this episode is like all the things that I love about the show and one episode. There are definitely moments where I'm like, oh, that's not what I love. <laughs> um, based on dialogue, not like um, how it's like directed. I think this episode is really tight. But I don't know. This episode is really – is the epitome of the 90 feel that I love. Oh, it totally is. I love anything in the 90s. But I don't know what it is. This 90s like TV shows and movies have such a magic to them. And this episode really exudes that. And so it's like – it's such a comfort episode to me. Yeah, they have a lot of um, popular songs from the time period that play like during the montage. There's also a montage too. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's got a lot of cliches. Montages are 90s yes. like uh, staples. Yes, 90s, early 2000s. Yes, they are. Yep. Especially on an episode that is so fashion centric too. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of it's just kind of fun to like feel a little bit cliche for a little bit. Even though it's still subversive of the cliche of like, hey, homecoming mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, but it's still just a really fun episode. But even though it is like, quote unquote, like a cliche, like even though that is like a high school trope and it's cliche, Buffy took its own spin on it. And so it's like, oh, they're going to fight over becoming a homecoming queen while being in this weird Hunger Games-esque like <laughs> Slayer type of thing going on, you know. Hunger Games. Like, and so it's like, it doesn't feel very like tropey like it just feels very like Mm -hmm. natural like oh yeah they're doing normal high school things while supernatural stuff is going on it feels very buffy 
All right, so Homecoming, written and directed by David Greenwalt, aired November 3rd, 1998. Okay, so the hunting humans as sport theme is based on the short story, The Most Dangerous Game. By I Andrew wrote that Paul. down. I literally, Did yes. you, Walia, I'm so proud of you. No, I loved English in high school. It was one of my favorite subjects. And I think it was freshman year, sophomore year, uh, I read the story, The Most Dangerous Game in English. And I remember, because we had to write like a little paper on it or something, and I remember being like, uh, this is Hunger Games if Hunger Games was way more interesting. And like, I remember like putting that in my paper and my my teacher was like, I didn't ask for you to back on something else. I was like, sorry. But um, <laughs> I like wrote down, I was like, wow, there's a, Classic you know, there's a lot of like similarities like in this between Most Dangerous Game, but I felt like Hunger Games was a bigger reference. So I felt like if they were going to take inspiration from anything, it would have been Hunger Games. But now that I think about it, I think Hunger Games was written after the show. So mm-hmm, Most was. Dangerous Game makes a lot more sense. I think what's different though, like I would say the Most Dangerous Game is a little bit more on brand for this specific episode mm-hmm. only because on the Hunger Game is everyone's in the same even field play. And so it's entertaining for them because it's like, oh, these kids who don't know how to fight, at least presuming so, are supposed to fight to the death. And then with the most dangerous game, it's more of a man who does it for sport. Mm-hmm. And he finds it fun because he knows he has the upper hand. But just it's very interesting because it's like yeah. anytime Buffy takes on something that's like famous, they always flip it on its head. Um, But for those of you who don't know, The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell is a story about a hunter named Rainsford who falls overboard his ship on his way to the Amazon rainforest to hunt game. He swims to a nearby island called Ship Trap Island and finds a huge chateau owned by a General Zaroff. Zaroff is another hunter who got bored of hunting game and decided to start hunting humans instead. So he set up the island to shipwreck people and then he takes them captive and then hunts them. He hunts Rainsford who outsmarts him and turns the game against him. Which is kind of cool because if you think about it, Buffy does the exact same thing. She ends up turning the game around and everybody else ends up being hunted by her, which I think is super Also, cool. if anyone ever gets the chance or the opportunity, absolutely, absolutely read the short story. It is very good. Mm-hmm. Fire, recommended to everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's truly short, so it won't take you very long to get through it. So this episode is all about Buffy wanting normalcy, shocker, and knowing that she'll never have the same experience of life that a normal high schooler has. She's trying to become homecoming queen, and that is another example of her asserting her identity and trying to fight for a normal life. And in case we all haven't recognized it by now, a huge, huge underlying theme of the season so far has been identity. I feel like what makes this episode different from Buffy seeking normalcy and like, you know, what's my line or all the other episodes in season two where this was a common theme is the idea that Buffy now fully accepts her Slayer side. And this isn't her going, dang it, I don't want to be a Slayer. I want to have a normal life. This is her going, why can't I also have a normal life I know that I'm always going to have to sacrifice things, but can't I just have this one thing? Can I just, like she talks about to Cordelia, can I just have um, that yearbook and I can look back and say, hey, I was there. Hey, I went to high school. And so I think that that's really important to note in this episode. It's not Buffy rejecting her Slayer side. This is Buffy saying, I just wanted one normal high school day, one normal moment, you know? And I think it's really interesting too because in this episode, Buffy recognizes and realizes for the first time that she doesn't need to feel guilty about that. I think she's felt guilty so much in season two about wanting a normal life or not wanting to be a slayer. And now she's going, hey, 
it's not wrong. It's not bad for me to desire to also be a human as well because I am also human and um, I'm not abandoning my role in wanting that. So this episode is actually a huge growth moment for both Cordelia and for Buffy. All right. So before we jump into the episode, I wanted to talk about wardrobe. And Leah, you can help me out here if there's anything in particular you wanted to talk about. This episode is huge. I didn't count. I don't know if you guys did, but there are a lot of wardrobe changes in this episode. And every single one of them is fire. They're so freaking No, cute. I noted it too. And I think a lot of it was because, A, they, they really did want to play on the trope of like prom, not prom queens. I keep saying that. Homecoming queens, like fighting it out, blah, blah, blah. But I also think they wanted to show the progression of time passing. And so it was like, Mm -hmm. usually I would say there's about three to four outfit changes in one episode, usually for Buffy. Each episode kind of spans a couple days, maybe a week. Yeah. So I'm actually going to talk about a little bit behind the scenes on what it takes to get the wardrobe for the episode. And I watched this on the DVDs. This is Cynthia talking about it and Marty Noxon and Jane Espenson and all the females behind the scenes for season three. And it's super, super fascinating. So Marty talks about how in shows like Buffy, as time goes on and it becomes more prolific, the wardrobe becomes more sophisticated. And this is typically due to the budget rising, but also because the star starts to have more of a say. So she was basically inferring that Sarah Michelle Gellar was like, hey, I kind of want Buffy's clothes to look a little bit more like this because I would like to wear this. So like we talked about, I think in Dead Men's Party, how Buffy's starting to wear a little bit more like preppy clothes and they're just a little bit nicer. And that is, I think, to show a contrast with Faith. But I think it's also to kind of show Sarah Michelle Gellar's own influence and taste on the character as well. Jane Espenson, one of the writers, says, it's a show that's become very good at both reflecting what teenagers are wearing and influencing what teenagers are wearing, which I think is really interesting. Uh, Cynthia Bergstrom, who was the costume designer, she's credited for having her finger on the pulse of what's fashionable or about to become fashionable. She says, I have about six people in my department, two key people that work with me. They pretty much execute the things that I need executed or implemented. I get a script and I read it through and then I break it down. I look for day breaks. I want to see how many days there are in the script. And then that basically gives me a blueprint of where wardrobe changes for each character would take place. For instance, a lot of times Buffy's in school and then later that night we'll see her fighting in the graveyard. I, of course, do a budget and determine how much each costume is going to cost, where I need to double something or triple it. So think about the prom dresses. Think about like the stunt doubles that had to do that stuff. So when she went and had to find those dresses, she has to keep in mind that she's going to have to buy multiples of this, which probably limits her scope of where she's able to buy. It would really suck if she was like, oh, I love this dress. This is perfect for Buffy. But then she can't find a duplicate of it. Ah, that would stink so Mm -hmm. bad. Um, She says, then I go shopping or I build or rent or whatever I need to do. Then I take Polaroids and I show the Polaroids to Joss and Joss does the final approvals. Joss approves every single outfit that at least the main characters have. Isn't that crazy? I don't know if I'm just uneducated as far as shows and stuff go, which is ironic because I have a podcast. But like as far (laughs) as I know, I feel like directors, are they that? I don't want to say anal because I feel like that's kind of – but, like, are they that, like, involved in wardrobe? Because as far as I know, there's a whole wardrobe crew that's, like, that. that's what they handled. He just handles, you know, whatever. 
So Joss is not a director. He's a showrunner, which means the showrunner is in charge of all aspects of the show. Um, I think they can be that detailed if they want to be. My guess is most showrunners are not that involved in their shows. Joss was because it was his baby because not only was he the showrunner, but he also wrote it. He's also directing it. He's all this other stuff because a lot of times some showrunners, um, they don't actually create the show. So there'll be someone that'll be like, hey, I'm going to adapt this show from a book and they'll have someone else adapt it and then they'll take it on as their own thing. But for Joss, this is kind of his baby because like he birthed the whole concept of Buffy. So therefore he was just so... I guess you could say anal about everything, but in a good way because I think he had a vision and he knew exactly what he wanted to see. And I mean, we have the product of Buffy because of him, but I do think you're right, Leah. I think that is a little unusual. Sometimes the network will be a little bit more involved as well. Marty Noxon says, I think Cynthia and Sarah, Sarah Michelle Geller, have a rapport and a communication which has really shaped the look of the show. So as I was like listening to these quotes and stuff, I was hearing more and more like everybody gives Cynthia a lot of credit, which she definitely deserves. But I think people forget that Sarah herself actually put a lot of her own influence into the creating of the look of Buffy and how Buffy acted and stuff. I'm sure the other actors did too, but Buffy's the main one that I heard about. Buffy definitely took on a brighter look. Her clothes reflected more of a springy look. I looked for more florals. A lot of accessories were used where I introduced a lot of different types of necklaces. Sarah herself is really fashion forward and aware of what's going on out there. And with a little more clout, she was able to say, you know, I'd like to look a little crisper this year or a little more mature. We'll discuss what is needed for the episode and each scene. She'll come in and she'll say, you know, I feel like I need to have more mobility here. It is great because she just communicates to me what she needs, and we work together as a team. Every character really is choosing their own style as their styles changes. And then she says, I read every magazine out there, but to me, if it's already in a magazine, then it's already been done. So I have a tendency to not shop department stores. I go to the smaller specialty shops where they have imports from European countries, maybe Japan. That way I have an idea of maybe what is not mainstream now, but will be later. And it's really crazy because Buffy actually shaped a lot of pop culture. And it's crazy because sometimes you look at it and when you're just looking at it from an outsider's perspective, it's hard to know what influenced what first. Was it the culture that influenced what was like worn on Buffy or was it what was on Buffy that influenced the culture? And obviously there's a little bit of both, but I really think that Buffy, the fashion of it was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. And a lot of people were influenced by what Buffy Well, I mean, even today, like, Buffy's fashion, because I mean, a lot of shows from the 90s um, and even like late 80s um, have started becoming more like recognizable for their fashion and stuff like that, like Friends. I think I haven't seen it, but I think a lot of people like the fashion on Full House. But Buffy specifically, there are so many things that Buffy wears and Willow and Cordelia that they all wear that literally you either could see someone wearing today or do i'm not saying like everyone went back and watched buffy and is now inspired but i'm just saying like i think (laughs) that the stylist was right to not go to like department stores and just shop for that time i think she really did a good job in in dressing what will be trends because i mean buffy was what like over 20 years ago now like this season and 25 years this year and most of these outfits i would i would wear yeah, I think it's pretty crazy that she took the time to put the extra work into that because honestly, she could have just grabbed stuff off of department stores, off the rack, 
that would have worked just fine, probably fit much better within her budget, and that would have been trendy for their time. But she instead looked for things that were ahead of trend, which I feel like takes a lot of research and an eye for things. And I mean, I'm, I don't know if you, about you guys, but I'm sensing a trend every time I look into these behind the scenes things with people that worked on the show, whether it's props, whether it's writing, costuming, all that stuff, lighting, every single person added in extra details that were not like necessarily, um, I guess necessary for the show, but that just those extra little things made the quality jump up so much higher and combining it, you have something that's super special that people poured their hearts into. And I think that's really, really special. And that's something that I don't know that Joss himself would have been able to look at an outfit and been like, oh yeah, that's definitely ahead of trend. Good job, Cynthia. I'm sure if she had picked something else that he probably would have approved that as well. And so I think she gets, she should get a lot of credit for her foresightedness, you know? So then she talks about Willow and she says, I wanted Willow to grow up a bit. I was transitioning Willow a bit further away from the overalls and sort of the androgynous look that she had been accustomed to. And then of course, Buffy as sort of this nomadic slayer, very sleek, simple, plain, militaristic. Xander was pretty much the same as he's always been. The basis for Faith was white trash. She was a tough girl. She exuded sexuality. She was definitely one of the more promiscuous characters we had on the show. She was just dark. Joyce had remained consistent over the years, Giles being the librarian, giving him that old feel, sort of a 40s feel with the three-piece suits and striped shirts. Angel's sleek, sexy, simple. I used a lot of darker colors with gem tones. I gave him an old-world European look with some of the coats. They were cut and frock-styled, but I also wanted a softness to him, so sometimes I would throw on a sweater. (laughs) Joss told me when I asked him about the mayor, he said, used car salesman. He sort of had this wholesome look about him, and I saw him as just this warm, friendly, almost open type guy. So I put him in a lot of warm tones, button downs, sport coats, and trousers. So yeah, that's behind the scenes for the fashion on Buffy. And it's just, it's very interesting to hear kind of like how much she has to understand the characters, even for her to shop for them. Dang, so much buildup for this episode. I know, sorry. No, apparently the costume is really important this episode. I didn't even really pay attention to that much. I just, I might. The whole focus was like the homecoming dresses, which are iconic. Um, all right. We open up the episode in the bronze. Shocker. Um, they're all discussing about getting a limo together. It took me a minute to realize they were actually in the bronze. I was like, are they in the coffee shop? Because this is an angle I just haven't seen before. It was a little weird. Yeah. I think it's funny because they, they kind of show the comfortability of certain um, couples mm-hmm. in the scene just to kind of parallel – how like uncomfortable Scott and Buffy are. And then Scott walks up and all of a sudden she's really comfortable. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> their their tension is so weird. I'm like Really? I didn't oh. think there was tension. I thought it was just like it, it's lack just like, fire. like you guys don't communicate at all. He was really sweet and like being like, oh like if you want to go, like I'll go. But I'm just like, girl, like just say yeah, I want to go. And she's like, well if you want to go. And then they did this whole like that's true. No, you hang up first. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like awkward tension to me it was more of lack of tension and just like especially on Buffy's part just such a lack of interest and I think it was Mm -hmm. just like Buffy really trying hard to like him and I mean yeah she was you really see that all throughout the episode of like when she's talking to Angel she's not trying to convince Angel she likes him she's trying to convince herself she likes him Mm -hmm. yep so they awkwardly decide that they're gonna go to homecoming together 
Oh, precious. This episode is interesting. I'm going to be reading a lot from the script because David Greenwalt wrote and directed this episode, yet he doesn't follow the script. There are a lot of things that are rearranged in the episode that are put differently in the script. Um, there's also quite a few lines that are cut out. So there's a line right here. So Buffy's trying to take attention off of herself after Oz says the judges will take that as a yes. So she looks at Cordy and says, so Cordy, what's your strategy for winning the election? Is it safe to say bribes are involved? And Cordelia says, bribes are only a part of it. A year ago, I would have had this thing sewn. But the public's fickle. There's competition now, not to mention my liabilities. And then she looks at Xander. And then Xander says, are you saying that dating me is some kind of hindrance to you bagging homecoming queen? And then Cordelia says, oh, sweetie, it's okay. I can overcome it. I'm that good. <laughs> Leah. I know that's such a mean thing to say, but that's also just so funny to just be like, to just like, and in such a Cordelia way of being like, oh, no, it's okay. I'm so good. I'll overcome it. And you're just kind of sitting there like, wow, that's really mean. Right. And well, it says Xander says, well, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it kind of shows where they've come in their relationship to the fact that they understand that those kinds of things aren't necessarily personal. It's just like the way that society kind of works. And so I don't necessarily feel like that was Cordelia specifically trying to give a dig at Xander. I think she was just stating things as they are like, yeah, dating you is going to mean other people are not going to vote for me. Um, and I think that it's interesting that like she talks about bribes because later on the episode, Cordelia and Buffy have a conversation where Buffy's like, you are bribing people. And I thought that was weird because in the episode, you're like, wait, they never talked about that, but it was in the script. And then um, Buffy also puts down Xander as one of Cordelia's weaknesses on the board. That's <laughs> funny. That's really funny. I always put this down as Angel's apartment. Not really sure <laughs> what it would be. I put it down as castle. Castle. <laughs> it's not well, anywhere it's, near the No, because it's huge. It's like a random it castle. It, the script calls it a mansion. So we'll find somewhere in between there. Apartment and, and <laughs> castle. <laughs> mansion. <laughs> this scene kind of it, – it's got to be so awkward as an actor to act out the scene. He's just walking around like breathing really heavily, <laughs> pretending like he's like having anxiety. It's just got to be so awkward. I don't know. I feel like dropping naked in the middle of a set, all greased down like a Thanksgiving turkey, I feel like would be a little bit more awkward than having to breathe heavily. I don't know. Some people don't care though. Some people like find it empowering or and or they just don't care about their body. Yeah. Well, knowing David Boreanaz, he probably cared less about that. Yeah. But I feel like just walking around being like, I don't know. That's just so awkward. I just can't. Tommy's like, strip me down, but I will not pant. (laughs) No, I don't want that either. I didn't say that. I'm just saying David Brianna's is more comfortable. I'm just saying that that, that's going to be so awkward. I don't know. I didn't think I would just start laughing. I'd be like, Tommy's like, having to pant everywhere. (laughs) And then his shirt is like open. Wait, what is his shirt? Liberty's not open. It's just the amount of times they take liberties just to show the audience, like, just so you guys know, Dave Boreanaz is still really sexy. Well, and the script says that too, Angel in pants, shirt open. They had to say that he was wearing <laughs> they put it in Whoever the is writing the script is like, please make sure his shirt is unbuttoned. Come on. <laughs> it's all like a bold face. Well, think it's underlined. like 16 different open like wardrobe shirt. changes. And then the one person who was hired just to unbutton David Boreanaz's shirt gets like fired. <laughs> They're like, somebody's doing their job because I can't see David Morianis' chest. 
It's so or true. like they they really they go through so many people to figure out Buffy's outfits because there's metaphors. It's beautiful. Has to fit her body. Has to make sure she can be agile enough to punch things. And for him, he has like the same outfit every week. It's literally he's simple. like, guys, can I have something different, please? <laughs> simple and sexy. What's funny too is that his his chest is always like oily because he's supposed to be sweaty. Yeah. So you know that they had someone who's like every scene they're like, cut. Someone go put oil on David Boreanaz's chest. <laughs> Or like a spray Yo, bottle. Literally. <laughs> You're like squeegeeing David Boreanaz. <laughs> literally. Oh my gosh. All right, now pants for us. <laughs> That's so awkward. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. And the the amount of tension they have is already way more so ever than, with than Scott. she had with Scott. Yeah. Like he opens up the curtain. She's right there. Immediate tension. I'm like, y'all just kiss already. Be together. <laughs> This scene is so sweet. Like, yeah. it's just so tender. They're just so tender with each other. I just love that. She's like, how are you feeling? And then he says it hurts less. And then Buffy tells him that she hasn't told everyone yet, that people wouldn't understand. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with her that she should tell people just yet, but she needs to tell them. Um and yeah. she kind of made it seem like she wasn't planning on it, which is interesting. I don't know yeah. where she's coming with that. In Buffy's defense, because I'm unapologetically a Buffy apologist, <laughs> I feel like Buffy's friends have not had a good record of reacting mm. well to her in general, but specifically when it comes to Angel. And so – I know. And say. so I think – and. And it's interesting that she mentioned, she says, I haven't told Giles and the others. Yeah. And so it's like the one person who always had her back was Giles. And Giles is the one that Angel hurt the most out of the group, Mm -hmm. excluding Buffy. Mm -hmm. But like, and so I think that in her mind, she's thinking, if I can heal Angel, if I can get him on his way and just like save him, she's like, then I think she wanted him to leave. Like, that's kind of what. I'm getting from the scene is that she wants him to kind of like Hmm. heal up, get better and then leave. And then she'll never have to tell the gang because he'll never be there, which makes sense. Hmm. I just don't know if she's really thinking about long-term at this point. I think she's still processing. I don't think she's expecting him to leave at all, nor would she want him to, but I don't think that she's really fully processed him being back. Cause like, I always kind of viewed this scene as like him starting to realize a lot of the stuff that he had been doing just because like, he had forgotten his name. He had forgotten everything other than Buffy while he was in Hell Dimension. Then he was like animalistic. And so now we know that he is like getting better. Obviously, there's some breathing issues. So maybe he's still having anxiety about Hell. Hey, but at least he has pants um, this time. And, and at least yeah. the shirt is on. It may not be buttoned, but it's on. He's getting there. Maybe that's it. Maybe he has the withdrawals of being naked for 100 years. And so he's not comfortable being fully clothed yet. You know what? We'll let him work through his trauma. We'll live with his it's, shirt it's being a, buttoned for a little while His longer. His buttoned up. Our button-down shirt is a gateway to him wearing a jacket eventually. So we can gauge we can gauge Angel's mental state by how much clothing he's wearing. That's that's Thus what far. I'm that's what yes. I'm seeing. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, but even like the way that when she says Giles and his response is very much like, "Oh, I forgot." Like, "Oh, Giles." Like, yeah. oh, I, I I tortured him." Yeah. So you can kind of see that he's he's processing still all the stuff that Angels has done cuz he turned into Angel right before he went to in the hell dimension and then he lived 100 years that we know of of forgetting himself. Yep. And then now he has to 
re-remember things. And so yeah. it's kind of as if he's living it for the first time. Um, Which is so sad because there's a part of me – I mean, obviously I love that he turned back to Angel so that him and Buffy could have had that moment in Becoming Part 2. But it's also sucky because it should have been Angelus down there who is the one being punished, not Angel himself. Yeah. Um, but I think this this episode is really great in the way it's blocked because – Angel doesn't face Buffy for most of it. He's facing away from her and he like grabs the blood like he's ravenous and then kind of like remembers Buffy's there and doesn't drink it because it's like he's ashamed to drink blood around her. And I realized, oh, we haven't really seen him drink blood since he's Mm -hmm. like been Angel. And as he's talking to Buffy, he doesn't face her. And I think there's a lot of shame that he's experiencing Mm -hmm. and a lot of just guilt. And so I think he doesn't want to look at her and it's just really sad. Mm She's saying that um, she's kind of starting over that senior year, that she's planning on, you know, all, she's kind of mentioning things that she's planning on doing with her life. And then she mentions that she's seeing somebody. He kind of like is startled a little bit. And you can tell that she's ingrained to be nervous around him physically um, from him being Angelus because she jumps. But then he immediately like softens and you can tell he doesn't really know what to do. And so he just kind of fixes her collar and it's just like, oh, it's just so sweet. And you're like, oh, you two are just so like, I don't know. I feel like the Angel and Buffy dynamic is so like unaware of what to do at this point. Yeah. Um, Just because there's been a lot of pain. And I think they're trying to adjust between like Angel still wears the same face as Angelus. And so I think that she has – her body has to catch up with what her emotions are telling her at this point. Well, he hurt her pretty badly, and so there's still going mm-hmm. to be that reaction. The intimacy of him just fixing her collar shows that he still sees the little details about her and he still cares about her. And I think it speaks volumes that, like, no matter if she's dating someone or not, like, there's always going to be that thing between them. And then the editing, whoever edited this needs a raise because she's like someone I can count on. I don't think we should see each other anymore. <laughs> so cold, man. I See, this felt weird to me because I feel like Scott has shown – not him breaking up with her. I think like we all saw that coming a mile away. But the way he breaks up with her, I feel like he's shown a lot more attentiveness to her. So I felt like the way he did it was a little bit cold because I feel like he's been super kind and attentive. And then he breaks up with her after inviting her to homecoming. Like at the very least, maybe you could have like still gone with her to homecoming because I feel like it's not really necessarily like you have to be with someone, but it's nice to go with someone if that makes sense. Well, I mean, especially if you invited them. Yeah, right? I I think I mentioned in, in some spoiler section, like either last episode or the episode before that, that the way that they ended Scott's arc never made sense with how they introduced him. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just like, even in this episode, they came going to homecoming with some other girl. You're just like, wait, what? It's supposed to be like, what, two, three days after? And he seemed a lot more sensitive than that. So I don't know. It just seemed kind of weird. But very odd. They have to make you hate him or else you're going to be like, oh, no, Scott, now I'm conflicted. It's a true love triangle. I I never hate him. I just think it's kind of odd. I'm like, interesting. I didn't think that you'd do that. I don't know. Weird. But he basically says that... Um, before he started dating her, she had life in her. She seemed like a force of nature. I don't know. I, it's it's hard because it's like it's like if a guy told me this, it'd be like, okay, so this is just BS for saying that you just don't like me or that you like <laughs> the idea of me. And then now that right. you are dating me, I'm not what you thought I was. Right. 
But in this case, we do know it's true only because she doesn't really like him and or feel comfortable and or feel emotionally available to date anyone. So she is way less like Buffy around him. They're clearly not love matches. She's like spacing out constantly around him. We yeah. see it in the past couple of mm-hmm. episodes. So I like I don't fault him for that. It's also funny because he's like the captain of Yawn. Like he's so boring. And so it's like how boring mm-hmm. must Buffy have been to him if she like even bored the most boring guy around. Like I just think that that's really yeah. funny. Yep. And then poor Buffy's ego is bruised and she's trying to convince him. And all he just says is sorry and then walks away. Ugh. And then there's like this like long walk and like the – She's alone. The we must <laughs> like marinate in it. And then for some reason there's these two twin looking dudes that look like – Younger brothers of Arnold Schwarzenegger are like <laughs> looking at her through like binoculars and then they send footage to an old white dude and then Mr. Trick pops up and we're like, oh, okay, so this is going somewhere we have no idea. Mr. Trick is uh, teaming up with some other people, which is exciting. It's funny because um, those two German dudes, Hans and Frederick is their name. They're actually played by real life brothers named Joseph and Jemime Dobb. I believe it. Isn't that funny? I was like, they've got to be brothers. They Why look didn't way they too similar. Keep their actual names. Those are sick names. <laughs> <laughs> They're not generic enough. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So Mr. Trick is so interesting. I really, really like him. In this episode in particular, it makes so much sense for him to be like, hey, I know eventually the Slayers are probably going to come after me. Let's make some money off of getting people to kill them for me. It is genius. I love it. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Also, okay, so this tech in here, like the the spying and all that stuff. I literally was laughing. I also was like, I'm sorry. How is this working? How is a flip phone (laughs) transferring somehow photo, like video to y'all? Like I just was like, and it's so funny because they really tried to make it look so high tech. Like, they really try to give you the cool transition with the phone. And you're like, listen, guys, I know you tried. I know you tried, but this is embarrassing. So IMDb talks about how the images sent by the phone modem to a remote modem or remote monitor. At the time this episode was made, this stuff was sci-fi advanced tech, like unheard of. Like, they were making it up, but like now we can do it just fine. The very first ever consumer product digital camera had been introduced just four years before this, the same time as the first smartphone. So we have to remember, like, technology completely blew us out of the water in just a few short years, but like, this looks high tech to everybody that was in 1999 at that point. If I was ever a director, I would avoid anything technological in episodes just because yeah, it dates it looks you outdated. so much. Yeah. The old man or the boss is played by Ian Abercrombie. He's best known for playing Justin Pitt on the sixth season of Seinfeld. He also played Alfred Pennyworth on Birds of Prey, Rupert Cavanaugh in Desperate Housewives, Professor Crumbs in Wizards of Waverly Place, and Palpatine in Star Wars The Clone Wars. Oh, wait, Professor Crumbs? Yeah, that's him. Oh. <laughs> Leah's like, now you're speaking my my language. Wizards of Waverly Place is a fire show. It's very good. Okay, so in the script, the next scene is actually jumps straight to picture day um, instead of going to the mayor's office, which I – I think they did a really, really good job with um, pacing and stuff in this. But it's interesting because we talk about how there's different costuming changes and stuff. Sometimes because they didn't rearrange the costuming for 
the changes in the script, sometimes you'll notice that people will be wearing clothes that they were for the day before. So yeah, just keep an eye out for that. Are we supposed to keep an eye out for that? Because I've already watched I'm talking the about the listeners. <laughs> the listeners, not you guys. <laughs> I know. Gabby's like, sorry. So Armin Shimmerman, Principal Snyder, um, had this to say about the casting of the mayor. He says, I had cast Gregory Itzen, who's an old friend of mine, as the mayor in my head. But lo and behold, one of my dearest friends is Harry Groiner. So I was tickled when Harry got cast and Harry did a brilliant job as the mayor, which is really funny because um, Armin Shimmerman is also was really good friends with the guy who played the first principal as well. So I think it's just really fun that like they got to be cast together. This this scene is really interesting because it's been set up that the mayor is some sort of like really creepy big bad villain, or at least that's what we're anticipating because like Principal Snyder feels terrified by him. And then like you have Alan Finch, his secretary, who's like super scared of this guy, and yet he's the most honest. He feels like he could be your uncle that you see for the 4th of July or whatever. It's just very – it's a very weird feeling watching him. And then thinking, you're supposed to be the bad guy? Like, this doesn't make well, sense. Well, it's also weird because, like, like the first – when he walks – when the, like, assistant guy, whatever, random character – Alan, Walks yeah. into his office, it, like, doesn't show the mayor's face for a while. So it was, like, kind of supposed to be, like, oh, face reveal. And so you're thinking, like, oh, shoot, is it someone we already know? Or is it someone, like, really creepy? And then you show it and you're, like, this is every normal white guy ever. Like, it's so underwhelming right, so that it's kind of creepy. You're like, why is this not something more shocking? Right. And he's like, will you show me your hands, please? And you're like, oh, he's going to cut off a finger. And he's just like, dang it, Alan, wash your hands better. <laughs> There's like these sinister undertones because you get the sense that the mayor knows absolutely everything that's happening in his town. And yet he's over here talking about washing hands. And so we're like, okay, so is he aware of Buffy? Does he know – that she's there in his town. Like he's got to if he knows that these two guys rolled in. I don't know. It's just it's very it's very interesting and like unnerving, I think. That's the feeling I got from it. They do a good job of kind of introducing his marriage of both like oh, like creepy uncle um but then confidant at the same mm-hmm. time. You're like for some yep. reason I find you really calming, but if you were ever to yell at me, I think I would literally pass away so i think yeah. that he does a like the, whoever the actress does a really good job of kind of like combining both those things because you know something's off about him but then he speaks about being super like adamant about cleaning and you're like interesting it's not not the type of person i thought you'd be no right and so i'm really curious to see what they're going to do with him like mm-hmm. as the season progresses yeah i have no idea what they're going to do with his character <laughs> Um, so we jump to the school and they have this cute little like montage of everyone taking pictures. And then Cordelia walks over and she's kind of mentioning how she's scouting out the competition. Some girls can give them a run for the money because they're really popular with the men. And then Xander being all gross is like Buffy and Faith are in the library getting all sweaty. And then Cordy's like, oh my gosh. they're training. He's like, I stand by Thank my you, phrase. Cordelia. Oh my gosh. And the amount of time she has to bring him back around when it comes to his like fetish with Faith and or Faith and Buffy and or Buffy, just layers in general. 
Right. And I kept right. I wrote in here. I was like, gosh, they're such crappy friends, though, because Oz is like, I don't think Buffy was here the day they announced them. Did anybody tell her? And they're like, oh, no, we didn't tell her. And I'm like, why did nobody tell her before today? Because girls like mm-hmm. to have their outfits picked mm-hmm. out and planned and look nice before picture date. Like the amount of like not thinking ahead not just is just. Cordy's but it also just. No, it, really it also isn't. just makes me mad because it's like. No one is noticing the fact that Buffy is clearly not really into Scott. Like, they're just kind of, like, trying to force her into, like, it and all this stuff. It's like, no one is actually aware of Buffy. Like, no one is actually checking in on her. And it's, like, really frustrating because, like, even though it is a lighthearted episode, you're like, dude, like, you guys suck as friends. If I Mm. was too busy to (laughs) to remember picture day and none of my friends texted me or anything, I wouldn't be friends with them. Like, what the heck? I was yeah. thinking about this last time we crept on Buffy's friends. I feel like the reason <laughs> last episode you mean? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the reason why Buffy's character is still highly admired as like a really great moral character. I think the reason why is half the time in order to kind of like show how moral and great Buffy is, you have to put her in crappy situations or she has to be the victim of a lot of things. Yeah. And at half the time that crosses over into her friends because you can't always do that through villains. And so I think that's why she's always seen in such a positive light most of the time is because of not only the contrast of her friends, but also how she responds to her friend's crappiness. Like she's just so gracious. Yep. And I feel like her being snarky in this episode, I'm like, girl, you held it in way longer than I did. I'd be so right. Pissed. I feel like I feel like it's very justified. I mean, Especially I don't think Especially what Cordy mean. says, and she, Cordy starts it all. Yes, Cordy we're getting there. It. I have a lot to say about Cordelia yeah. in that. We will get there yeah. for sure. No, for sure. I'm I'm not trying to jump the gun. I'm just saying that like, like yeah. I don't know. I understand what yeah. you're saying. Yep. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Buffy has the patience of a saint, and she's far more justified to lash out and speak on her own behalf than she gives herself credit for. Like, she really should be speaking yeah. more. Yep. So we cut to the library and then Buffy's practicing punching with Faith <laughs> and Faith kind of like fans out of her hand like she's been hitting it super hard and is like, man, like I should dump you more often. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really interesting because Faith tells her that, you know, you got some quality rage going really gives you an edge. Mm. Where have we heard this yeah. before? Of course, this is coming through the lens of Faith, the un- mentally unstable girl. <laughs> right. But this is the same thing that Buffy said to Kendra. She told Kendra, you know, my anger, my emotions makes me stronger. Mm-hmm. Use them. And so the fact that Faith is saying this, it's just interesting to watch someone from the opposite side of the spectrum saying this to Buffy. Mm-hmm. And I think this was really sweet. Faith is like, oh, like we can go together. We can find some dates and ditch them. And I'm like, oh, that's sweet. Like someone who's like a little bit more in tune with what's going on with Buffy. I think someone who's a slayer is able to recognize the tug and pull that Buffy's going through. But I also just noted that, like, Faith was the best friend to Buffy in this episode. Like, she's the only one who notices Scott being crappy at the end of the episode. She's the one who is really, like, there for Buffy when Buffy is angry and, like, frustrated and all this stuff. And she's the one who actually notices it. And I do think you're right, Tabby. I think part of it is being a slayer, but I also think – as a slayer, you have to kind of be a little unselfish. And so you have to be a little bit more aware of other people. And I think that Faith is very aware of other people. And this is the first time I, I noticed, because I don't think I ever noticed up until this rewatch, and I'm being dead serious about this, that Cordelia offered to go tell Buffy. 
And then on top yeah. of that, you see her about to walk in and then get distracted. I never she just got distracted. Up those things, yeah, yeah. And it was her thinking of herself in the moment, being like, "Oh, I need to go win their votes." Um, mm-hmm. Which I, I, yeah, I don't know how that I miss both those things because, like, the conversation later on, I was like, "Why is she only mad at Cordelia? How? What? what why is?" Cordelia, the one having to tell Buffy, but she offered. It wasn't like. But it's also it's the way that the friends paint it. They say, "Oh, Cordelia Mm -hmm. was supposed to be the one to tell you." Not, "Oh my gosh, we're sorry, we didn't tell you." Yeah, we could have taken that on ourselves before we even asked Cordelia to go, or Cordelia offered Mm -hmm. to do it. You know, because Cordelia is by far the least friends with Buffy. Yeah, yeah. It also doesn't really make sense to me though, picture wise, because like. Even at the school I work at and when I was in high school, there were there was at least one more day, like a few months later, where you could retake and or if you weren't there that day, you could take your school picture. Like I don't think that they would ever leave a blank. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, especially for your senior year. Yeah. But I don't know. It's it's a plot device. They're trying to show once again Buffy mm-hmm. can't have anything normal in her life. Mm-hmm. Poor girl. This, it would really piss me off though. Like it's your senior year and you don't have a picture. Like that sucks. Then we cut to outside of the school. This part, I'm like, oh, the teacher that she like that apparently changed Buffy's life, like the class that she had, she was super inspired by. She goes and asks her for a glowing recommendation that Snyder's been asking her for, and the teacher doesn't even remember. But I think it's really interesting that uh, the class that she's teaching, which does not sound like a regular high school class, but she's like contemporary American heroes from Amelia Earhart to Maya Angelou, that class that changed my life. It's all about women, empowering Mm -hmm. women. And so Buffy's like, here's a strong woman that's speaking to me and like, you know, helping me in my empowerment of other women. And this lady doesn't even remember her. It's like an extra blow. Mm -hmm. So sad. And then we cut to the cafeteria where Buffy is talking about how sad she was that the teacher didn't remember her. Okay. This scene is really, really interesting. So again, remember I told you about how like the way the script is laid out. Mm -hmm. So the episode or the scene where Buffy's talking to the teacher, that is supposed to happen at the exact same time that Xander and Willow are having their moment. So Xander and Willow's moment is supposed to actually, in the script as it was written, was supposed to happen earlier on in the episode. So this moment right here, if you'll notice, you probably don't remember, but it you really kind of focus on Buffy just sitting there looking alone. But if you look at Xander and you look at Willow, they both look incredibly guilty in this mm. scene. And it's taken to be everybody's just like lost in their own world eating. But what's actually happening is this is happening after that scene and Willow and Xander are feeling guilty because of what happened. Also, um, the costumes are the same from like the day before. So it's like a little flipped, but it's really interesting to kind of watch this scene because it's interpreted very differently if you recognize that it was supposed to be because they're feeling guilty. Interesting. So, yep. Um, and then Buffy starts reminiscing about her old school, her, her old life. And I, I like how we touch on reminiscing on her old high school days after we've seen a flashback. Yes. And it's weird though because she talks about her glory days, but it really was only freshman year. But she transferred yeah. to like Sunnydale sophomore year. Yeah. But I mean, you also think about it, that was her last normal year. I think it's just like any time where she wasn't a slayer, where she didn't have that responsibility is considered a glory day because she like could actually be normal. Yeah. Mm. She mentions that the yearbook was a book about her. 
Um, <laughs> and then they're like, oh, yeah, about the yearbook. I mean, Miss Picks. Why did they oh, mention yeah, Cordelia didn't tell you? Like, after everything happened, why didn't they go looking for her to make sure? You know what I mean? Because they're crappy friends. Which I feel like I wish they had their moment before this because then it would make sense them being distracted about their guilt. But since they didn't, I'm like, you guys have no excuse at this point in the episode. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, they hadn't even technically had their moment in the script or otherwise when they didn't tell Buffy and they sent Cordelia or Cordelia went to go talk to them. Mm -hmm. So like they really have no excuse. They've had many chances to talk to her before this. Yep. And okay. Yes, I'm mad about what happens later on in the conversation with her and Cordelia, but initially I'm really upset at Cordelia because they're supposed to be friends. They hang out all the time. They're in the same friend group. They help save the day all the time. She walks up and Cordelia's like, Buffy, you look so cute in that outfit. And she's like, I'm not voting for you. And she's like, then make it snappy. I'm like, where is this aggression coming from? Like, you guys are supposed to be friends, right? Like, what if this was something helpful for you? What if it's something nice for you? And she's just like immediately so rude. I don't understand that. This is a common thing I find in TV shows and and even like maybe you'll have movies that that are trilogies or whatever, where you have a character that is extra bitey. And in order to have character development, they have to soften them over time, but they have a really hard time with softening them and then keeping that bite that everybody liked that Mm -hmm. make them so popular. And so we've seen Cordelia soften over the past few seasons, partially because we don't see very much of her. So they just use her bitiness as um, a lack of tact. And so they make her very truthful and they use her to like progress the story on But now that we have an episode that's completely Cordelia-centric, in order to make her stand out, they kind of have to go back to the bitiness. And it's unfortunate because I feel like we have made some character growth Mm -hmm. with her. And this episode feels kind of like a huge step back for her, back to like season one Cordelia. And I don't really – I mean, obviously by the end of this episode, there's like some growth, but I don't really like it a lot. And I agree. But it's also like not only does Cordelia say mean things as a friend – she says stuff so out of yeah. line. Like at one point, she makes a comment right. about Buffy's parents. Like I was like, "Yeah, yeah, what? That the was the worst. Frick? Like just yeah. so out of pocket." Yeah, it was really bad. She also mentioned in the conversation she's like that she's not involved at school, that she doesn't have any friends. I'm like, okay, can we take a little objective look here? Okay, right, right. Um, <laughs> you hang out with the same people. Um, you have mentioned that your status has gone down a few notches. We haven't seen you hang out with Harmony. You have the same amount of friends. You may have- your friends were Buffy's friends first. So like- (laughs) Yeah. Or just like you may have more like casual acquaintances that you used like for your own satisfaction in the school. But it's like friends wise, meaning like people you hang out with the most, the exact same. I don't understand where that's coming from. But also, she's yeah. literally yeah. saving the world. Like, I don't understand. <sighs> yeah. I think the point of this this scene in particular is, you know, Cordelia says, now if it was about monsters and blood and innards, you'd be a shoe in And so as we see later on, and we'll see this in like their, their heart-to-heart in the cabin, Cordelia is actually – very insecure in comparison to Buffy because she recognizes that what Buffy's doing is really important. And I think Cordelia wants 
to have something important too. And we see that later on. She's like, she goes, like, why do you even care about this? She's like, you're saving the world. And so, and this is Cordelia's way of putting up armor and trying to be like, my thing, my thing's important too. And like trying to find some sort of significance when she knows that what Buffy's doing is more significant, but what it's coming out is, is very Well, it also doesn't help, not that all of Cordelia's problems are Xander's fault, but it also doesn't help that, <laughs> but like it also doesn't help that her a large part of but them. it's like it doesn't help that her boyfriend constantly raves about how cool Buffy is, how much he like Ooh, how how important yes. Buffy is, how strong she is, blah blah blah. And all those things are true, yes. But it's like I would be insecure about what I was doing too. Like anyone right. would. Right. Well, and if you'll notice too, and we'll talk about this in a second, but like at first I was like, why is Willow and Xander helping Cordelia? I mean, they're obviously feeling guilty, but there's this sense for Cordelia. She's like, you have Willow and Xander all the time to help you slay. Everybody's basically your sidekicks. I think for once Cordelia wanted to have her people like or the the gang help her as like she's the slayer of the school. And so then she has the Scoobies come help her. I think there's this sense of like, she wants to feel important enough to have people come back her up and help her. Um, not saying what they did was right, but yeah, I think there is. And we've talked about before, like Cordelia was written initially to be Buffy's shadow self. Buffy was Cordelia before she became the Slayer. And so this is this episode is the perfect intersection of that right here. This is really random, but re-watching this episode, I've, it was very odd. I watched it and I was like, maybe it's the fact that Xander is kind of sidelined in this episode. Like he's not like he's not he's not like goofy Xander. He's like normal. Like even the way he acts is very like I don't know. He just seems normal. normal. <laughs> like I saw him and I was like Nicholas Brennan's kind of cute. Like in this episode. Oh no, <laughs> no. Like like he was so normal. Like him like talking like like Willa being like oh yeah like I'll, I'll help you later. Just like he just seemed like like a normal dude. Like he wasn't trying to be Xander. You know what I mean? Maybe it's because he felt guilty the whole episode. <laughs> but I looked at him for like the first time ever and I was like, oh, he's kind of cute. It's <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> You're like, the less you talk, the more attractive you are, Xander. It's just the character of Xander sometimes that bugs me. But then when he's like normal and sweet, I was like, yeah. I was like, oh. And I think like it's good because like later on when you have that like little like monologue that like Cordelia has where she's like, oh, he grows on you. It's like when you see like the sweetness of him where he's not performing, you're like, oh, he can be really endearing. Like even though him and yeah. Willow have that weird, you know, thing, it's like he was very endearing to her before that happened as like a friend. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I was like, oh, like he's he's like a little sweetie, you know, when he wants yeah. to be. He has his moments. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Until he cheated on his girlfriend. Well, yes, Leah. Yeah. Leah's like perspective here. Perspective. I'm talking Sorry. about how yes. he was acting, how the actor was acting in this in this episode. I was yeah. like, oh, he's not like yeah. annoying Xander in this episode. Yeah. No, I totally gotcha. Yeah. But my favorite part of this dialogue with her and Cordy, she ends it with like a um, sorry, Cordy, but you have no idea who you're messing with. And she's like, who? The Slayer. She's like, no, I'm not talking about the Slayer. I'm talking about Buffy. You've awakened the prom queen within and the crown is going to be mine. I'm like, yes, girl, uh, you've awakened Buffy the prom queen. We're here for her. I love it. I, and it, this this um, moment mirrors Cordelia at the end when she's talking to the Gorsh brother mm-hmm. and she's like, you know, if you think Buffy's the Slayer, how you know terrifying can I be? It's, it's really kind of cool to see the mirroring of the two characters. Mm-hmm. 
competition is a beautiful thing. We have Mr. Trick go straight into his competition speech, which, ah, the show, it's just, I can't get over how good their um, transitions are. I didn't really write much down about the competition speech. Do you know much about that one? I do. But first I want to mention, okay, so um, a little bit of breaking the fourth wall here. So on Instagram, Prophecy Girls, the other podcast, our sister podcast, I'll just call them because we we love them. They wrote this whole long thing. They they just finished season two like a week or two ago. And there's this common criticism that we've heard as well where they're talking about how like because Buffy has a lollipop and becoming part one, that means that she's automatically being sexualized. And it's there's like a whole pedophilia um, uh, undertone because Angel's watching her and she's got a lollipop and it's like a Lolita reference. Um, and I just want to point out in this episode, in this scene, Mr. Trick has a lollipop and I don't ever hear anyone saying that he's being sexualized in this scene. And so I actually messaged Prophecy Girls and we had a fun little laugh where it's interesting how like just because she's a girl, there is this tendency to be like, oh, she has a lollipop. That means she's sexualized. Whereas we've talked before, Tabs, like how many times have we seen Buffy with a lollipop in this show? I think at least three episodes. I think it was like- Several times in the harvest she had yeah. one. Exactly. She had one in Teacher's Pet too, I mm-hmm. think, um, in several different scenes. And so it's like – Also, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to be real. Anytime a girl's eating anything like that, like a like a hot dog. A banana. A banana. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. People always sexualize it. I'm like, why – like, why is – like, can we just have a lollipop? Can I just eat a banana? Can I have a corn dog without people being weird? Well, but it's also yeah. like there is such a different way that you can film it if you want to sexualize it, which like, ew. Yes. But like she literally is – the few times she is like sucking on a live pop, it's literally like it's not even focused on her mouth. It is literally just like a wide pan shot of like a room or like a courtyard or whatever and there's stuff going around and she's sucking on a live pop. It's a prop. It's no different yeah. than a it's supposed to show her just being younger, preppier, and mm-hmm. sassier. And like Leah said, you can tell when there's like a euphemism or if there's like an undertone for things. And I've seen that in several different things. But that's not – I always kind of viewed it as like them trying to show her age and her like sassiness in those scenes. Yep. And he has the lollipop in like the entire scene right mm-hmm. here. And you never hear anybody talking about him in a sexualized manner. And so I think that is a very clear hypocritical viewpoint of things. And I just – I wanted to point that out because I'm like, Mr. Trick has a lollipop. Are we going to sexualize him now? Mm-hmm. All right. So fun fact. Um, the Kulak demon or whatever his name is, the spiny-headed looking thing that Mr. Trick calls him, his name is Chad Stahelski who plays Kulak. He was um, a stunt performer or coordinator. He's on many, many, many episodes. I was just going to say, could you imagine being a demon and your name is literally Chad? <laughs> <laughs> this is the Chad. demon, Chad. <laughs> He's like, guys, it's no, short name- for Chad Helsky, okay? <laughs> yeah, good emphasis on the hell. No, his name is Kulak, but yeah, the actor's name is Chad. Um, So he's a stunt performer or coordinator on Buffy. He's in several different episodes. But one of his first jobs, he was a stunt double to Brandon Lee's character in The Crow after the actor was tragically killed in an onset accident during filming. Later in his career, Stahelski turned to directing. 
he's directed the John Wick franchise. Isn't that so cool? Very nice. He was a stuntman in The Matrix for Neo. He worked as a coordinator on The Hunger Games. Haha. Wolverine, X-Men, Tron, After Earth, The Expendables, and so much more. He's also looking to reboot the television show Highlander, which I think is really cool because somebody who started out as a stump double and then worked their way up to um, director, I think is just like that shows a lot of That's hard work. Inspiring. But it's kind of it's kind of cool to watch him in this in this episode. He's not even the main character, and you know. Yeah, he goes on to have such a prolific career. So Ooh. now now you'll never look at him the same again. Dang, good job, Chad. Good job, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> a Chad I approve of. <laughs> I was going to say, a Chad I don't hate. <laughs> I literally thought that, and then he said it, and I was like, dang it. <laughs> His comedic timing is really funny. I always love the random demons that we see in these episodes. He always He's actually kind of cool. Yeah, he reminds me of like a mix between a human and a – um. Uh, what is that? dinosaur that lo- has that those like what's it called stegosaurus oh yeah stegosaurus yeah yeah stegosaurus. yeah, yeah. he does kind of look like a dinosaur uh-huh. <laughs> we also have one of the gorch brothers back of all Lyle. the things of all the random episodes I we know. have one of the gorch brothers I will from fat it eggs. just it makes it feel like more like an actual universe because you're like oh like i know this people like it's just weird because it's like oh there's actual ramifications i know he mentions tector and we're like, R.I.P. Tector. <laughs> I still crack up. <laughs> Why is he about to make me blush? He's like, he's like, I'm a bitch like a redheaded stepchild. <laughs> oh, man. What a weird episode, but I love that episode. So Mr. Trick, he has his whole monologue where he says, ladies, gentlemen, and spiny-headed looking creatures, welcome to Slayer Fest 98. He gives the skinny on both Faith and Buffy to them, talks about how one of them is a little bit more rough than the other, lightly put. (laughs) Um, And then he ends the whole monologue with, welcome to Slayerfest 98. Which I'm like, man, I'm excited, even though you're trying to kill Buffy. I I was like, okay, bring on Slayerfest. (laughs) You're like, I'm piped. Where do I sign up? Sounds like this summer festival. I'm like, man, okay, I'll come. The the actor who plays Mr. Trick just like chews up his dialogue. Like the way that he he phrases everything, he just does such a phenomenal job. He's it's he's really fun to listen to. And then we cut to the best scene in the episode. Oh gosh. I forgot. You guys, I forgot do you about guys want to know what I wrote in my notes? Because I physically could not write yes. anything else. I said, <laughs> ew, I hate this scene. <laughs> That's literally <laughs> it. I was unable to write anything else. I had to stop myself from fast-forwarding it. <laughs> I like it until she comes out in the third dress. Yeah. Because their their dialogue is very, like, normal. Like, they like the actors do a good job of just acting normal around each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Like, I feel like they both seem like they're in a good place because they both feel safe. And I think this is – and here's the thing. I don't think that this is forced in, like – between both of them, I think it makes sense. Only yeah, because, I like, I think that both of them feel comfortable, maybe even mm-hmm. more so around each other right now because they both think they're safe because they both are in relationships. Um, yes. And so I think having, like, the whole, like, oh, let's change the same room, which I think is stupid. And I think that if you're both <laughs> dating people, you should not be changing the same room as someone yeah. of the opposite sex or someone yeah. that, like, you know, you're attracted to. That doesn't make any sense. Like, and I know it's a prop thing 
but don't make sure there's not a light behind your screen so they can see every bit of your silhouette, silhouette as yeah. you're changing. It's such a movie thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like aesthetically wise, it makes sense if you're going to be like directing it or whatever. But I don't know. It just seemed weird to me. I was like, y'all are in relationships. Why are you changing in the same room? This is odd. They did a good job of like kind of like building up to it. The mm-hmm. actors did a good job. I felt like it was a natural progression. Um, even though it's like the cliche, it's like, oh, like first time I see you in like an outfit that's really hot and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I've seen this person for the very first time. Mm-hmm. But I think this one I think is a little bit more believable than some like rom-com movies I've seen where it's like this person's quote unquote ugly and then you put them in a cute dress and you're like all of a sudden they have a figure and you're like you take oh, off their glasses I'm, yeah i'm like um, she's all that <laughs> i know that's exactly what i was uh, thinking but i'm not crappy on the movie that movie is love that movie it has like all my favorite 90s actors in it yeah so all right let's let's talk about this for a minute here i don't think this is out of the blue necessarily. I I think it's a little jarring because the past couple episodes, there's been like literally nothing hinting. The last we had was really Xander Mm -hmm. um, when he said, you know, I'm becoming part two. That was like that he loved six episodes ago. Yeah. But it's like, and it feels like six months Mm -hmm. ago for the characters. However, they have laid plenty of groundwork because of Willow's crush, them almost kissing in when she was bad. So we know that there is like the potential for some sort of interaction, mm-hmm. a romantic interaction. It just was a long them. stretch between yeah. that time. They built a lot of it in season two and then there was like no hint of it uh, so far in season three. It. It, and it's just – it's kind of hard for me to see Willow cheating on Oz mm-hmm. simply because she's so infatuated with him at this point. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, crushes, like especially first loves, it's hard to, like, tamper them down, especially because Willow's been in love with Xander for so long. So – but I just I, – I don't like it. It's icky. And it sucks because I think – if we were going to see Willow and Xander together in a healthy, positive way, it would have been the beginning of season two before the relationship started with Cordelia and Oz. And so it's kind of like, ugh, of course we're going to see them now while everybody's, you know, happy and But of course this is the only time Xander falls for her when she's unobtainable. Yes. There's that too. Of course, the episode where you're saying Cordelia's very raw, real insecurities mm-hmm. and things like that is the episode mm-hmm. her literal boyfriend cheats on her. Yeah, and she says that she loves him. Uh-huh. Like she says she loves him, which I mean, we we could see coming because I mean, ever since Go Fish. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Anyway, we all know what happens. They say it's a fluke. Moving on. Library. Buffy, apparently she um <laughs> went too hard in one of the scenes and broke her wrist or fractured it or something. She did, yeah. And so she did. you if you look at it, they purposely placed her in a sweater. And she keeps her arm, one of her arms down. I think it's her right arm. Mm-hmm. She keeps her arm down and she tries to cover the sleeve because she has a little cast on. Um, mm-hmm. But if you pause it at a certain angle, you can see the white that she's trying to cover with her sleeve yep. in this scene. Yep. But she has like this whole like chart. Pros and di- cons. Yeah, like a diagraph of each person, yeah. like all the competitors and yeah, like their weaknesses and strengths to look out for. Um, and the the vibe in there is just all over the place. Oz is just <laughs> oblivious. He's just sitting there like, sure, listening to Buffy. And then Xander will look so uncomfortable. Do you see how far apart they're sitting mm-hmm. from each other well, too? And like yeah. Willow has her legs crossed and her like hands folded. Like she's trying to contain like her 
like body, you know? Um, and then Buffy's just like talking. She's like unaware of everything. She's like, I'm not unpopular. A lot of people came to my coming home party. And then Willow's like, <laughs> they were all killed by zombies. She's like, oh, good point. <laughs> but it's also like, this is so scummy. Why didn't they tell her they were doing stuff for mm-hmm. Cordelia? Like, they, it's not scummy that they yeah. were doing stuff for Cordelia because it's like Xander mm-hmm. is Cordelia's um, boyfriend. And then like Willow is like, semi friends with Cordelia and Oz I mean is with Willow so it's like it's not scummy but the fact that they aren't telling her and they sat in a meeting where Buffy talked for who knows how long about this and no one brought it up is weird I think it's they're just so consumed by their own guilt they're so aware of the other person's presence at that point but it's still it's still stupid but also they can help both like why do they have to only help Cordelia like you could do both. But also, if I were yep. like them, I'd be like, you know what? Everyone's helping Cordelia. Maybe one of us can help Buffy. Like, maybe we could put yeah. our heads together and think of some sort of solution. Oh, man. I think it's funny that Buffy's list of Cordelia's weaknesses, one of them is Brie, like Brie Cheese, because in Deadman's Party, both Cordelia and Xander said that they hate Brie Cheese. Isn't they put oh, that on the gosh. whiteboard? Isn't that funny? That is funny. Uh, and then Xander's like, she's my girlfriend walks away and the willow's like it's just that she needs it so much more than you do and oz as willow goes so goes my nation what a great line and he's such a good guy everyone's like we love you oz oh my gosh we know what's happening seriously i just i feel scummy watching it like oz she's cheating on you yep okay so what do you guys think about what willow said about cordelia needing it more than buffy do you think she's right i think right? it's absolute bs i don't think she's right <laughs> i think that like willow willow has this false idea of who buffy actually is and she thinks that mm. buffy is like this super ba slayer which i mean she is but she thinks that like slaying is like fulfilling to her and that like that's Buffy's calling and blah 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 and that's what Buffy wants to do and she's like that's super cool for her and so she thinks that Buffy has all this stuff together so she doesn't need to go to school she doesn't need her pictures taken she doesn't need to be like a formal queen but it's like dude like if you actually sat down and listened to your best friend you'd understand how much she actually needs to feel like she's a part of something like Cordelia Mm -hmm. doesn't need this the only thing she would need it for is her ego Whereas Buffy needs it Mm -hmm. as a way to actually feel attached to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is completely Willow's guilt speaking. She's saying she needs it, but it's really Willow needs to be helping Cordelia and helping her make herself feel better. Um, And I think that's a really good point, Leah, because I think that Buffy needs to feel anchored to something. And so the fact that Willow doesn't recognize that Buffy – actually has her own needs apart from being a slayer is just another is just one more reason to be upset with the scoobies and see how they just have their heads in the clouds they literally only see buffy through one lens and that's as the slayer and not as a really a regular human being it's very selfish yep and then giles comes in and he has like this whole we have not seen giles this this entire yeah episode Uh uh-huh he brings up the fact he's like, as long as it's still fun, as long as it's still a factor. And she's like, sure. It's not like anyone takes it that seriously. Breaks the glass in her hand. <laughs> the notes in the script are from David Greenwald. And he says, um, it, as it actually crushes the Snapple bottle. And he says, while Miles files piles of tiles. Basically, I guess Miles is their guy that would have to make all the little like uh, – what looks like glass shards. And then he says, I'm very sorry. <laughs> <at the very end. laughs> 
And then we have this cute little like 90s montage of like not only Cordelia and Buffy doing the works of trying to like get people's votes and stuff, but then we have like this like intermix montage of all the vamps training. <laughs> but I know. I like know. whose idea it's was beautiful. this? Is so funny. I love it. I love it. It's beautiful. <laughs> and then Lyle and his wife getting on. It's just the funniest montage. They're not even training. No. They're just making out. <laughs> yep. It's great. Okay. Buffy's gray dress. Oh my gosh. It's very 50s, but she makes it work. And with her hair up, I just love it. I think she looks so gorgeous. Gorgeous in this episode. I, All of her I always kind of viewed it as like the character Buffy trying to be something she's not. And so she's yes. dressing up a little bit more like, oh, I think everyone will like this. Whereas if she just was herself, everyone would be like, sure, I'll vote for you, you know? But she's <laughs> trying to be like all like classy and or flirty or whatever. And she's just like not missing – she's like missing the mark. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think – too. She's also handing out these like gigantic chocolate muffins. Um, those look fire. And I <laughs> I don't know. I don't like cake, but my the only exception for me is chocolate cake and or chocolate cupcakes. Chocolate muffins are freaking fire. They looked so <laughs> yummy. And like that guy was like munching on it. And then he just like throws it away after one bite. I was like, to get those like store-bought chocolates? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Those look like the worst. Those were like homemade. The homemade like chocolates. Oh, they're so good. And why do they? Why do they have to throw away one? Can't they just enjoy both of them and then vote for it? Like it just. I, I know. know. It was. Yeah, if it I were if I were in the school, I'd milk up and like I. You have my vote, so I'd get all the stuff they're gonna give me. Yeah, and then right. Just not vote for any of them. It's not like they would know. Like eat the cupcake and then eat the chocolates. Come on, people. Think smarter, <laughs> not harder. And then Buffy runs into Scott, which I think this is on purpose. She drops the papers like accidentally <laughs> because like when she seems all like like hurt and shy around him. And then as soon as he walks away, she takes out her like notebook and then like checks that he's going to like vote for her. I'm like, I see you, girl. Yeah. No, actually, Tabs, you're spot on because the script says. Oh, really? Look at me. Buffy says, I really don't want to. Stops herself. Thank you. He nods a little self-consciously, moves on. She drops the sad girl act, whips out a list, uh -huh. checks off Scott Hope. Yep. <laughs> this girl's not heartbroken. It's her ego that was bruised immediately. And then she's like, nope. And they moved on. Yep. <laughs> Oh, well, I tried. <laughs> she just like moved on. Angel's back. I'm going yeah. back to shirtless Angel. Maybe I can rub oil on him this yeah. time. <laughs> okay. So there's a couple of things that are cut out. Like they have a couple montages. So at one point, Holly puts up her poster. Then Michelle takes it down, puts up her own poster. Then you cut to Cordelia taking that down, putting up her poster. And then you cut to the words, get more with core on Cordelia's poster as <laughs> Buffy tags them, get bored with core. <laughs> Dang, I wish they kept all this in. Yes. And then um, Buffy talks and laughs with a hip group in quotations. And then it cuts to Buffy talking and laughing with the jock group. And then Buffy talks and laughs too hard with a nerd group. And the nerds look at each other. This chick is a bigger nerd than <laughs> they are. Oh, gosh. I will say, as frustrating as Willow is in this scene because she's the victim. I'm just joking. I, I do love Willow. I just tend to crap on her a lot. But – Allison Hennigan's acting in this scene is really funny to me. She's like feeling like super guilty. Buffy is all like, she's like, mm, it's just a shame, you know, like all those times that I saved your life. And then Willow's like, what do you want? 
<laughs> and I mean, I got to hand it to, to Willow too. It must be exhausting having, having like two of your friends fight over each other while like dealing with your own turmoil. You're like, what does everyone need from me? <laughs> Both the girls killed it. Yeah, I, I got to hand it to Buffy. She really pulled out all of the manipulation mm-hmm. tactics in this episode. And I was like, dang, girl, I see your inner Cordelia well, coming she out. She started in subtle and then she was like, okay, she's not picking it up. And then she went a little bit bigger. She's like, okay, she's still rejecting it. And then she went into straight, well, I've saved your life a few times. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Pulling out the big gun. Because no one can reject that because she would literally be dead without me. So, Exactly. And then we see Jonathan. We haven't seen him in so long. Every time I miss Jonathan. Maybe it's because I've been watching Gilmore Girls some way. I'm like, oh, I love this actor. I forget his name. It starts with a D. It's like Danny Strong. Yes. Danny Strong. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. There is a whole um, – there's not a whole, but there's a, a couple um, dialogue things that are cut out between Buffy and Jonathan, which is kind of funny. She's like, you know, I've always felt a special bond between you. Me. And he's like, Cordelia gave me six bucks. <laughs> <laughs> that buys a whole lot of cupcakes. And then the part that's cut out is Buffy says, okay, how about you vote for me and I don't beat the living crap out of you? <laughs> that's a good one. And then he says, that works good for me. <laughs> oh, good old Danny. Anything he's in. I love all of his characters. So good. All right. And then we have this like this next scene between Cordelia and Buffy, and Buffy comes a little hard in this. It's interesting to watch her become a little bit sharper as the episode is going on, almost like she's kind of becoming more like Cordelia. It's really interesting. This whole trying to be like me isn't funny anymore from Cordelia's, you know, the subtext is rapidly becoming text. I'm just going to say that for the rest of the show. I think that's the whole point is that like given opportunities where we can manipulate people and put in positions where you just feel like really hungry for attention mm-hmm. to a lot of people, not everyone, but to a lot of people can really like be the ego and and like make you feel like your top dog, um, which can lead into a lot of just like saying a lot of nasty things. See, okay, my biggest beef with this scene in particular is yes, Cordelia stepped over a line and she said something really hurtful to Buffy. The thing is our standard is a lot lower for Cordelia because she and Buffy are not really friends. Buffy saved mm-hmm. her life a few times, but her and Cordelia have never really bonded. Xander and Willow are working freaking hard to try and make sure that they don't say anything that they regret. And yet I feel like what they said in Deadman's Party, I'm just going to, Deadman's Party is a new teacher's pet for me. What they said in Deadman's Party is way more hurtful and they did not work as hard to reconcile with Buffy as they are in this episode, trying to force Buffy and Cordelia together. It just feels very hypocritical. And it feels like, once again, Xander and Willow are trying to put Cordelia and Buffy together because of their consciences. Like, they they feel guilty. I agree. It just feels a little underhanded and selfish. Yep. Such lovely, uplifting words to each other. Right. And you have the next scene with Willow and Xander where they're talking about this mm-hmm. is the worst thing ever. And there's the parallels of they're talking about Cordelia and Buffy, but what they really mean is themselves. So it feels like all of this is an overcompensation for them just feeling guilty. Yeah, Stupid. Because it's like, let's be realistic. It's really not the worst thing ever. Like, No, it's not. The worst that could happen from that situation is Cordelia and Buffy aren't friends anymore. Okay. Not much will change. Yeah, no, literally. So it's like, yeah. clearly you guys are overinvested in this for different reasons. 
Yeah. I think it's very, very interesting to note though that Xander says to Willow, I know, I know, but when I look at you now, it's like I'm seeing you for the first time. I know it's crazy, but I can't help it. That's the exact same verbiage that Amy and Buffy used on Xander and Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Yeah. Let that marinate for a second. It's like I'm seeing you for the first time. So there is a very um, – I don't know if that's intentional, but there's a clear parallel there where it's like, is this really what you want, Xander? Are you just looking at Willow because she's that shiny object that suddenly is maybe out of reach? Is it actually what you should have? Or like, are you actually in love with this person? You know, like, I feel like it's very similar to what Amy and Buffy were saying. It's, it's just, it's interesting. <sighs> and then we cut to Buffy's iconic homecoming outfit. She looks like a little princess. I love this outfit. And the shoes. They definitely like, I just like how they chose dresses that fit both the girls' personalities and the colors to fit them. It's just, it's very cool. They just look like Christmas, which is even more nostalgic too. So I'm just like, oh, so cute. <laughs> and she has a lot of body glitter too. Like she's like shimmering. Yeah. Very 90s. Yes. I love this line. She's like, Peach looks better on me. She's like, it does have that sallow tint. I was like, dang, Buffy. The comedic timing in both the girls. Everyone so just good. brought their A game comedic wise. We also don't really get to see a lot of Buffy and Cordelia yeah. interaction. We haven't really seen them together since I think some assembly – not some assembly required. It was uh, the one with the penis monster. <laughs> oh, God. Dang, that was a whole season ago. Yeah, it was. What is that episode called? I don't remember anything from that episode except for that. I actually like that episode other than the climax. <laughs> No, not again. Not again. <laughs> I said it. I didn't even mean to say it. I didn't realize how I connected. Uh, the ending of the episode. The ending. Yes. Yes. Um, thank but you, I Tammy. actually like the episode. On. Anyway, um, although I don't agree with a lot of stuff that like some characters do or say in this episode, the situations that they're put in are so funny. Like this yeah. whole like limo. So funny. Just like the dead silence. I don't see what the big deal is. <laughs> so funny. They're still talking about the corsage. So passive aggressive. Yeah. Still how, how long was this trip? Yeah. And they're still talking about who got yeah. what. <laughs> oh, man. And then um, the limo stops and you hear the guy just sprinting away. That would be terrifying, though. I'm not going to lie. I literally think I'd have a panic attack if I heard that. I'm like, we're going to die. But like, okay. <laughs> Yes, I'm driving then. <laughs> yeah, literally. So a lot of people were talking about like, okay, why is this a TV in the middle of the woods? Do they have like the world's longest extension cord? Why don't they just follow oh, the extension cord yeah. back? But yeah. in this script, it says it's a battery-operated TV. Is there such a thing as a battery-operated TV? For sure, TV? guys. For sure. Why isn't it a laptop? They had laptops back then, didn't they? Uh, the old not MacBooks? Like, like the dinosaurs that yeah. could barely do anything on it. Yeah, no. Could you imagine if it was a laptop and you just like, you you know, like when you s used to start up those old computers and it was like, and it was like really That'd loud. That would be really and, funny like, if they had to start up in the episode. Could you imagine? Like, it's like starting up and they're like, how long do we have to wait? And they have to leave behind one of the German bros yeah. to help set it up. He's like, like, hang on just a second. The driver and then he comes runs back. Away. He starts like hitting it. He's like, sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, the TV doesn't start working. And they're like, um, what do we do? Like, dang it. It's they like, don't know the rules of the game. It's one of those TVs with the antennas. He's like, sorry, guys. Let me just fix this real quick. 
It's really interesting because Cordelia is mistaken as a slayer in this episode, but she's also mistaken as a slayer in What's My Line Part 1 um, when Norman Feister thinks that she is Buffy and attacks her in the house. And I think that they are once again trying to show the comparisons between Buffy and Cordelia. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> um. And he's like, oh, yeah, 30 seconds. And he's like, well, actually, now 17. And they don't start running. They just stand there. I'm like, y'all, run. And then, yeah. and then someone shoots at the TV. Then they're like, oh, okay. So they weren't joking. I, what I thought it was funny, though, is like they have that little outro in the video. It's like this like, <laughs> music playing. And it's like Slayer Fest 98. Yeah. <laughs> With the outdated I font. Saw that too. <laughs> I was like, dang. I was like, kind of a fire intro. I know. Like, I was like, I'm hyped. <laughs> <laughs> so, so were there older versions? Or- <laughs> Did we see the footage from the other people? You got them online? or? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, and so we cut to the homecoming dance. Faith looks so cute. She's adorable. I love she's Faith so in this cute. too. She's mm-hmm. so cute. She's like happy going around, blah, 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 blah. She's like sticking it to um to Scott. Scott. Like Faith, I was like, Faith, you know what? I'd vibe with you at this dance. If I was at this dance with you, I would be partying with you. And she just acts so normal and cute. I'm like, oh, like I just forget how like troubled you are. You're just so normal and cute this episode. <laughs> Um, Willow and Xander are like awkwardly sitting there all guilty as usual. Willow's like, and Oz wrote this song for me uh, as he's playing it. I know. What I literally wrote in my notes. I was like, yes, feel guilty, Willow. <laughs> okay. So here's the lyrics from this song. It's called oh, She no. Knows by Four Star Mary. It says, she flies from a blinding light and spirals to my heart. I try to find my mind, but don't know where to start. Won't ever, can't ever find my sanity. Won't ever, can't ever till I hear her calling for me. She knows that side of me. Can't help it. Can't help that side of me. Just a little more, just until I know what I'm feeling. I'm lost in a thousand nights, but sun shines at my feet. I'd walk through a thousand fires and next to me she'd be. Oh. Yeah, he's talking about his werewolf side. Yeah, if I heard that though, while I had kissed someone else, you best believe I would never kiss him again after that. Are you kidding me? How do you hear that and then still? Oz wrote a song for Willow, and she kissed freaking Xander. Xander Harris, of all people, so sad. Willow, Willow. At least, at least, at least, Sander feels guilty. Okay, that's the one consolation. I'm like, okay, at least he knows what he did that's was wrong. And he feels guilty. I'm sorry. I that's know it is. Minimum. I know, but it, like, I'm grasping for straws here. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you're the one that thought he was attractive in this episode, and this is the one he cheats with Willow. I'm saying Nicholas Brendan being normal is attractive. <laughs> Leah and I are judging. Leah and I are I'm judging you. <laughs> it's a little bit of a weird episode to have that realization. <laughs> Okay, exactly. Why am I getting the third degree now? Sarah said she understood. So why are you saying you, you're you getting mad at me now? I didn't. I did not say I yes, understood. I just roll the tape. <laughs> roll the tape back. <laughs> hey, I'm in charge of editing. I'm just gonna conveniently take that out, and everyone's oh, gonna be like, "See." <laughs> I am just saying that Nicholas Brendan, him acting normal as normal Xander before they kiss. Did you guys hear me say that before they yes, kiss? Yes. Yes. 
I was like, oh, he's cute. You also prefaced it with, we don't see much of him in this episode, so, and he doesn't talk much, therefore he's more attractive. Yep. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. So y'all are making it sound like awful Sander. I find attractive. I did not say Sander. I said Nicholas Brandon <laughs> being normal. Y'all are twisting my words, <laughs> twisting it. Tabby's going to have to defend herself on this one for the rest of the podcast. Am <laughs> <laughs> I not allowed to find an actor attractive? Nicholas Brendan's cute. An actor. But I why this episode? Nice. Why this episode is the episode that you're like, hmm. Okay. And then Giles is just absolutely precious. And he's talking about the finger sandwiches and making jokes. Like, who is this man? <laughs> Something happened. We need to find Buffy. When that line happened, he's like, <laughs> when he said that, he's like, sorry, just wanted to scare you guys. I literally <laughs> died laughing. I was like, that is the funniest. I would do that all the freaking time. <laughs> well, he's like, just kidding. Thought I'd give you scared. He's like chuckling in there, like not even amused. And he's like, ooh, is that finger sandwiches? <laughs> it's because they're not in the mood. And he just cannot read the room at all. So funny. And then we come back to Slayer Fest 98. <laughs> Tabby's pumped. <laughs> and so Cordy's like still chatting like Buffy's ear In off. denial. <laughs> like, like, girl, they're <laughs> listening in. You have to be quiet. She's like, what if what if we just tell them, explain to them I'm not a Slayer. Then they'll set me free. I'm like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. I think that they sound like upstanding people. They'll definitely want they're to like, do that. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. You're definitely not going to go to the police about us trying to kill you or anything. And so the guy shows up with a gun she chucks that thing that would be heavy though not gonna lie if that hit you yeah Oof. yeah those things are thick i honestly wish that instead of this random dude being in here we would have had the guy from phases come back the hunter dude and he would have been the one stuck in the trap because i think he was such a awful guy i can't even remember his name now and i think it would have been like really interesting to have like these reoccurring characters we'd seen from like episodes past other than just Lyle. I agree. That would have been cool. Yeah. been kind of fun, but I mean, it's all good. And so back at homecoming, Faith goes up to Scott and his date and fakes a medical issue about <laughs> his nether regions. And the girl looks like so grossed out and Scott's See, like, Ugh. that's a true friend. Faith mm, is right? a true friend. Um. So then Giles like comes over and he's all, I love this scene where he says, I want to be here when Buffy and then he pauses, however it turns out for her. And I love that he's being supportive. He doesn't know if she'll win, but he wants to be there for her if she doesn't win. And then he wants to see there and celebrate with her if she does. Then he tells them, he's like, that's a fine thing you guys did for Buffy and Cordelia. And I just like, I don't know. He's just such a pure man and he deserves better. <laughs> so they find this abandoned cabin. And then Cordy's like freaking out being like, we're going to die. And she's like, yeah, well, you are if you just stand there. Well, I just love the contrast between them both at the school earlier, how Cordelia is so self-assured. And then here, like Cordelia's out of her element, doesn't know what she's doing. And like Buffy's got her corsage tied behind, like around her waist, behind her back so that she can like, have it for safekeeping. She's effectively using her entire environment. Like in this scene, she um, at one point she had grabbed the trap and spun it around. She uses the antler. She uses the chandelier. She yanks up the rug at one point. She even uses the gun to, as a blocking mechanism. Like she just is very good at what she does. And mm -hmm. I, I absolutely love that we got to see both of those sides of Buffy. Mm -hmm. I think this episode more than any episode we've seen before really showcases the two sides that make up the whole of Buffy. And I think it's really, really cool. Buffy internalizes a lot of like her just anxiety 
And I think that I like how we have Cordelia kind of being outwardly scared and then Buffy yeah. telling her, like, if you think this way, you will die. And so right. you get to see kind of how Buffy views things. Uh, but it's also just the fact of, like, Buffy has to be the calm one mm-hmm. because she knows yeah. if she's not the calm one, Cordelia won't be and they will end up dead. So she, like, Buffy has learned how to keep a cool head under pressure because she has to. Well, and she told Joyce, I'm good at my job. I'm not going to die. So I think this is also confidence. I don't know that Buffy's necessarily scared. I think she's just like, I do what I have to do. This is my everyday life. She tells Cordelia that too. And like this next scene, I mean, Cordelia's like starting to recognize what Buffy goes through every day. I'm never going to be crowned homecoming queen. Neither is Buffy. I'm never going to graduate high school. Buffy might not graduate mm-hmm. high school. I'm never going to know if it was real between me and Xander um, or some temporary insanity that made me think I loved him. And now I'll never get to tell him. And this is something Buffy goes mm-hmm. through every single day of her life. And so for the first time in her life, Cordelia is actually having to put herself in Buffy's shoes. And I think yeah. it's a really pivotal moment for both of them. This is the best way to end an episode like this where Cordy is being the way that Cordy is. You know, yes. like I'm really happy that they had both of them be and like a life or death situation together because this is the most intense than it's been in a while for Buffy. Like so many people mm-hmm. are literally hunting her down and the Scooby gang is there. But like in this situation, it's just Buffy and Cordy. And so she can see firsthand like how much Buffy has to go through in order to save the day. Well, and not just that, like, it's not like a every once in a while, like, oh, yay, I get to be the hero, like, and, you know, save the day. It's like a, oh, this is a all the time, every day in the most inconvenient times and places. Like, this is not some fun little game that Buffy gets to play. It's it's literally a reality of her life. I love what Buffy says back to her. She says, yes, you will. We're going to get out of here. Then we're going to the library where Giles and more weapons live. She does no separation there. Giles lives in the mm-hmm. library <laughs> with the weapons. But she says, and we're going to take the rest of these creeps out in time for you to congratulate me on my sweeping victory as homecoming mm-hmm. queen. And she's like, I know what you're up to. You think that if you get me mad enough, I won't have time to feel scared. And hey, it's working. <laughs> right. Well, who said this earlier in the episode? Faith said that to mm-hmm. Buffy. She says, when you are angry, you're Mm -hmm. stronger. So there's another comparison between Cordelia as well. Yep. And then she looks in the drawers for a weapon and then Buffy asks (laughs) her, you really love Xander? She's like, well, he kind of grows on you like a chia pet. (laughs) The fact that Cordelia goes for the spatula Mm -hmm. and doesn't think to call anybody on the phone is just one of the best things Mm -hmm. about this episode. But if I'm being honest, I'd love to bag on her. I feel like I'd be that stupid in that situation. Like I'd be like, okay, I'd be like, okay, oh my gosh, uh, a weapon, a weapon, a weapon, a weapon, and like completely miss the blatantly obvious things that could help me. Like that your is something brain I would is do. trying to like narrow in on something you know. So what you're thinking in that moment is weapon. You're not thinking, oh, a phone to call someone. You know what I mean? Like if you're having right. like a one track mind, then it's like you're only looking for that one thing because your brain is just like freaking yep. out. You know. I apparently I forget that she actually makes contact with Giles. I always think that she doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she leaves a a message in his answering machine, and then they catch the phone signal, and so that's how mm-hmm. they find and track the girls. Giles is in the library. He hears the message from Buffy. Then we come back to that um, abandoned house. Cordelia is like, "How come everywhere I go, or every time I go somewhere with you, it always ends in violence and terror?" And Buffy's like, "Welcome to my life." 
This is very similar to what Anne said to her as well. And I think that it's interesting that Buffy owns it in this one. And Anne, she was very defensive in this one. She's like, yeah, this is my life and Mm -hmm. I've accepted that. And then the whole, I don't want to be in your life. I want to be in mine is really, really interesting. Cordelia starts out and says, I don't know why you care about homecoming when you're doing stuff like this, which is an interesting way of phrasing it. It seems as if that like she kind of admires what Buffy does which is not exactly how she's been coming across. Right. And Buffy says, because this is all I do. This is what my life is. You couldn't understand. I just thought I could pick up a yearbook Sunday and say, I was there. I went to high school. I had friends. And for one moment, I got to live in the world and there'd be proof. Proof that I was chosen, that word, chosen for something other than this. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking because it's like Buffy risks her life every single day for the world. And it's like she just wants to feel like she's a little bit a part of it sometimes. Yep. Yep. The whole besides I look cute in a tiara is so Buffy. But I think what is really interesting about this moment is, I mean, Cordelia actually wants a deeper life. And I feel like for the first time in a long time, we're actually getting to see a layer of Cordelia that we haven't seen before. It's like we're peeling back a little bit and we're actually getting to see that no Cordelia isn't just vapid. She doesn't just want attention because, and she's talked about how she's lonely before. She has gone beyond that. She now has friends. She's no longer lonely. Cordelia wants a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. Cordelia wants something more than this. And to her, in her small world-mindedness at this point in her life, she sees homecoming queen as something meaningful because she's still in high school, you know? Um, But I think even more than that, the script says specifically after Buffy gives her little speech, says, Cordelia listens. And I think that Mm. is probably one of the most poignant words I've seen on this script page because Willow and Xander didn't listen in Deadman's party. Nobody listened to Buffy, but who's the one that listened in this episode? It's Cordelia. And I feel like no one has actually listened and heard Buffy in so long. And I think that speaks volumes to Cordelia's character. And then on the flip side of that, on Buffy's end, it speaks volumes to Buffy's character that she's unashamedly saying, I wanted something other than an, uh, or I want a normal life. I want something other than a slayer life. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. And Buffy's owning that without feeling guilty for the first time in her life. And that is growth. Yep. And then the yellow dude or whatever comes running. Kool-Aid. Yeah. Kool-Aid. <laughs> um, Cordelia is like hitting him with the spatula. And then Buffy's like, Cordy, the gun. Cordelia takes up the massive gun, shoots a plant. And Buffy's like, Cordelia, the spatula. (laughs) I love how her first instinct was like, protect, protect. And then she was like, ooh, wrong person to give a gun to. (laughs) She's like so close to him and she completely misses him. Like, girly, come on. I will say Cordelia hitting Kulak with the spatula is just fantastic though. (laughs) Love that. Then we cut to the library and Lyle and his wife are just like chatting it up. They're just talking. Oh, yeah, them. Where They're like – they went nothing. straight to the home base. I think that that's actually super clever. Mm. But if they thought that both the Slayers were going to die in Slayer Fest, why would they need to go to the library? I think Lyle, having seen Buffy before, probably knows that Buffy is going to – 
escape. Either that or he thought the best way to actually get Buffy is to draw her out by um, getting her watcher. And they they actually cut that out of the um, the script. You know, Candy, I want to do Buffy, my wedding present for what happened to your brother when she come in. And then Gorch says he's her watcher. She'll show as soon as she takes out our competition. And then this is the part in the script that's not in the episode. He And then she says, can I eat him? And he says, of course you can, sugar. I'm hoping to get a little information out of him first. Wish you hadn't clocked him so good. And Candy says, hell, I hit you harder than that. And Gorch says, but I'm your husband and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of funny. <laughs> Super funny. <laughs> oh man. Okay. At this point, I'm convinced that the writers and the crew of Buffy knock out Giles as a joke at this point because he gets knocked yep. out way too much. Like there has to be yep. a joke with this. This is the eleventh time now in the in the series. Seriously, eleven? Yeah. Then we get cut back to the guy in the surveillance camera. Then Trick gets taken by the police or whatever. Then Buffy comes in. The wife is like beating up Buffy. She throws her into like the bookshelf and slams her all the way down. Like, ow. That looks painful. Yeah. And then she does. And Lyle gets so mad. And then we have this whole iconic dialogue between Cordelia. And she's like, I haven't even broken a sweat. See, in the end, Buffy's just the runner up. I'm the queen. You get me mad? What do you think I'm going to do? And he's like, later. Smart for Cordelia, man. Just lie your face off. Just because right, exactly. it's like, what are you going to lose? Seriously. Okay, so I want to take this moment. This is kind of long, but I think this is really, really important. So this is a quote from Charisma Carpenter. It's from the book Slayers and Vampires. Um, and we've talked a little bit about it, about how Charisma Carpenter – you know, it all it broke earlier this year about the abuse that she experienced on set with Joss Whedon. Um, and I think this this quote was taken before all of that came to light. And it's interesting now reading it. She was trying to say those things without fully coming forward and saying it at that point. And it absolutely breaks my heart. So she says, it's amazing what people will and won't put up with. I feel people will put up with bad behavior before they'll put up with something that's costing them money. That's just the facts. If you're late or you're mean to people or you're challenging ideas and you're creating angst among people, it's not appreciated and people will talk about it. But I was having meetings in which my producers were calling me in. My agents were being called in. It was just an awful situation. She had anxiety at this point, but she didn't know she had anxiety. I could cry just saying this. Obstacles are so important. They give perspective. So when they come, you can go, I earned this, I deserve this, and you're not lost in that because you worked for it. It wasn't just given to you. I had to overcome a lot and it keeps me grounded. She talks about how on Buffy, it was one of her first jobs and a cameraman got so mad at her for not hitting her mark and she had to learn as she went along. She said, I didn't know it was, in it was anxiety at the time. I just thought I was stupid. I beat myself up about it and I would obsess about my dialogue and I would study for hours. I bought my first house in 1999 and I'm living with someone and I was never present. I couldn't enjoy my house because I was constantly trying to figure out what was happening. Do I just need to study harder or memorize longer? There was no space left in my head to just be. It just got really nasty. And she talked about how she wrote out the script a hundred times, every script that she got. She would toss a pillow back and forth with her acting coach as she was reciting lines 
months. She went to a psychiatrist and took anti-anxiety medication. She says, really what I probably needed to do was to stop running lines. I needed to relax, which is easier said than done. That's so cliche, but how do you let go when you're driven like me? So that was my big thing. And my co-stars were probably annoyed and it didn't bode well with my relationships with them. Not that they were mean. There was no drama like that. But you know, poor Sarah spending thousands and thousands of hours on a set. I just can't imagine that this girl is six years younger than me who was working her ass off, consummate professional, and then it's charisma's turn. There was shame around it and the anxiety and fear and really empathizing with everyone I was working with. And then she talked about how no one came to set for the first few seasons to see Cordelia because she was the mean girl, but they would all come for Willow and Buffy. And she says that they all love to hate her. And at some point, she says, it was season three of Buffy. It was during the homecoming episode. And I have to do this spatula thing where I'm swatting the air with my spatula and Buffy's looking at me like, God help me. And I remember just going to Joss and David and saying, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of being the damsel in distress, the stupid one, the idiot. Like that's such a good idea. I had all these ideas about Cordelia, like why does she have to be such a slut and making out all the time? And I don't like that. I don't like this image. I probably said only those two things in the entirety of the series as a complaint. And I remember being shut down so succinctly. Joss said to me, but that's why America loves you. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll just keep doing that then. Honestly, I never felt that fan love for the first three seasons of Buffy. I would go everywhere and people knew I was on the show, but people would never come up to me. I guess I was a very convincing bit. People even to this day on Twitter never call me by my name. They call me Cordy or Cordelia. It's silly. I laugh at it, but then it's hard from tweets to discern whether they're doing it to be sarcastic. It's a beloved character, and I'm grateful that she's finally beloved. It took a while for people to warm up to her. Jeez, that's such a hard thing to carry. Yep. It really is. And I think people appreciate Cordelia now more than they did, I think, when the show aired and Mm. stuff. And it's it's amazing. I mean, knowing what Charisma went through, she did a phenomenal job. And I couldn't I couldn't even tell that she has anxiety. She carries mm-hmm. Cordelia with such confidence and stuff. But it just makes me so sad that this episode, when Cordelia has that moment of empowerment, Charisma herself felt so beaten down and discouraged. And I think it speaks volumes that she poured so much into Cordelia. But I thought that was really important to share. I mean, there's so many things you could say about that quote that makes me really sad. But another emotion I feel when I listen to that is just how strong and sweet of a person she is. Because even as she's talking about how she had so much anxiety during that time, she then compliments the work ethic of Sarah and someone right? and then talks about how young she was and says how she felt bad that she was bringing her down which i guarantee sarah wasn't even thinking about and it's like yeah. that's just so sweet to be like oh like poor sarah ha- has to do so many hours of being on set or whatever and she's just like uplifting another hardworking woman on set and i just i applaud her for that but we applaud you. We love you, Charisma. We love Cordelia. And I've never thought that Cordelia was stupid. I've never thought that Cordelia couldn't handle herself or that she was a slut or any of those things. But she played Charisma more three-dimensional than maybe they were trying to, to portray her as. And for that, that's such a testament to Charisma. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I guarantee that the anxiety she felt was most likely due to the abuse that she was getting on set. If she was in a more positive work environment, she probably would have been able to relax and enjoy her job a little bit more and not be as anxious, which is a really, really sad thing. Yep, absolutely. Oh, man. All right. 
And this is such like a in Buffy fashion, like during like, you know, mm-hmm. like something that's like normal that everyone goes through is happening at the same time that Buffy has to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. Like in Prophecy Girl. She can never enjoy anything. Yep. Yeah, no. Yep. Everyone's having a good time at homecoming. And then these two like assassins are on campus. This is so smart. They figure out that the trackers are in the corsages. And so she takes wet toilet paper. She runs in front of the guys. I'm like, guys, that is that is gutsy. She really thought on her feet. Mm-hmm. It was very well done. She runs into one side of the classroom, throws a tracker against the wall, lures one of the guys into the, the classroom in that same spot, and then runs out the backside or hides into the other classroom, waits for the other dude to come in, and then throws it on his back so both trackers are aligned and both guys shoot each other. Genius. Yep. And the old guy leaves there thinking that he mm-hmm. won and killed both the slayers. <laughs> Could you imagine figuring out that your people killed each other? I'd be so embarrassed. I'd be like, never right? again. <laughs> You're like, well, there will be no Slayer Fest 99. And then we cut to the mayor's office. This scene is very interesting. I think it was the the dialogue about children and their future was a little lost on me. And I wasn't quite sure how he picked up on the subtext of that because I didn't even pick it up. Um. Yes. So this is something that we're going to see that we are seeing throughout the season. And I can't get too much into it. But there is a theme that is popping up in season three where it's very much about community. And we're seeing this – like we've seen Principal Snyder talk about this and uh, I think it was Go Fish where he was like team player – Let's be a team player. Let's let's work for the community. And it's all about what can the children do for us. And it's very selfishly motivated. And we're going to start to see a pattern. We already have started to see a pattern of each episode is going to have a theme of the community and how the community, um, it's a very authoritarian way of looking at things versus in uh, Anne, Buffy uses her authority to benefit and help the society and to help them revolt against the authoritarian or totalitarian leadership over them. And in this episode where they're kind of heading with the mayor, it seems like when he's talking about like the children are our future, it's instead of like the children have their own future, it's our future. And so it's very much the idea of their identity is usurped under us. And this this season has been all about asserting your own identity. And I think that we're going to kind of see that when it comes to um, the authoritarian people over us. And I know that's like very vague and broad, but I can't get into it too much. But just like look for those patterns as we're watching the rest of the season because there's a very interesting theme that starts popping up. Or even just the merge between childhood and like growing up. And like, yeah, that's what the season well is. Too. I think this is a good theme for their senior year because it definitely mm-hmm. fits right into the life that they're in right now. So the mayor is a, a lot more sinister in this scene mm-hmm. um, and underlyingly sinister. Mr. Trick is like, you know, oh, I get it. I don't fit into your quiet little neighborhood. I just honestly, I can't be impartial when it comes to Mr. Trick. I think he's such an interesting and funny character. Everything he does, yeah, I'm like, I yeah. Agree. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, I agree, 100%. Slayer Fest, woo, go kill Buffy. Um, But then, you know, the mayor talks about, hey, I have a job for you. You should be part of my team. There's that word again. 
And Mr. Trick says, what if I don't want to be part of the team? And the mayor says, oh, no, that won't be an issue. You and I are going to get along very well. And that's very – like he says it just like kind of casually, but there's a like a, a threat underneath there. And I think that like we kind of get a glimpse of what the mayor actually is underneath that, which is kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to homecoming. Everyone's still – I don't know why they didn't go out looking for them. It was like the entirety <laughs> of homecoming. And they're like, where's Buffy and Cordelia? And they show up and their whole fashion glory. They still look super cute too. I'm like, dang, you guys still look great. They do. I Although I wish that they both did become like homecoming queens, I think that it ends on like a very fitting note where they're both sitting there being like, oh, well. And they just kind of like walk away. Well, but I like how it showed that it's like in the end, homecoming really wasn't a big deal. And it was like mm-hmm. more so that like they needed to kind of work out what was going on. Yeah. I love that you're like, okay, which one's going to win? And then they would talk about the tie for the first time. Mm-hmm. I just hysterical. It's it's such a cool subversion of the genre. And it would have been fun to see them both win. But at the same time, I think at the end of the day, like you said, it was just not about that. But uh, what a fun episode. We really needed that kind of a breather in this season so far. It's been a pretty heavy season. Um, but I, I'm kind of like itching to see Angel back because we had the, like, the one little like mm-hmm. no scene of that, that That's probably one of my only complaints about this episode is like this like scene with Angel feels a little out of place. It's not out of place. It's just short. Like this is the first time we've seen Angel in a very long time. And it's like, okay, I want more of him. But it does make sense that he's going to need some time to recover, you know. Well, guys, that was Homecoming. We hope you had fun listening. We had a blast recording it. If you guys liked this episode, please feel free to leave us a review and rate us. We always love hearing from you guys. You guys can find us on Instagram and TikTok, A Coming Buffy Podcast. We're also on Tumblr. You can also email us, becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, guys, have a great week. Bye.